how to uh, demonstrate certain truths that he wants him to teach. And he uh, focuses on not changing the things that God has given to them through Christ, through the inspired writers. And then he exhorts him to study to show himself approved unto God so that he will know those things and he'll be able to continue in those. And then we come to verse or chapter 3 and begin with verse number 1. He says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof from such turn away. Understanding that statement that Paul made to Timothy, we have to understand kind of the foundational uh, ideas behind that. As a soul-stirring landmark, separating the two great covenants, God placed the old rugged cross. It is the focal point of New T- uh, Old Testament prophecy and the preaching of New Testament. And so we see that we have this focal point, and it's placed there for a reason. On the cross, the Son of God fulfilled all the prophecies of the Old Testament and established the church of the new. Because of his unimaginable actions, Paul said that, speaking of Christ, Galatians 3 verse 13, said he redeemed us from the curse of the law. Being made a curse for us, it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Peter paid homage to the actions of the cross, declaring who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, 1 Peter 2, 24, that we, being dead to sin, should live under righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. Now we have to understand, and the world, I think, a lot of the time has a misconception of the cross. It was certainly not a thing of beauty. The cross was not a thing of beauty. Instead, it was reserved for malefactors. It was reserved for murderers, for vile men of every kind. And it was also associated with infamy and shame. There was nothing glorious about the cross on which people were murdered. It was and is today a symbol of shame, suffering, sorrow, and death. So when we see crosses throughout the world, I think a lot of the time people misunderstand exactly the nature of the cross. It would be much like us setting up Uh, electric chairs throughout the nation or hanging nooses in different places or uh, putting up images of a firing squad or whatever the case may be. And it was to that death though, this shameful death that the writer of Hebrews talked about, that shameful death that Jesus went having no sin but dying for sinners so that we might have the opportunity to eternal life. When we look around and we see all the churches in the world, we see that there are so many different variations of those who claim to be Christ. 
And we have to ask ourselves because our desire is to bring others into the Lord's body. When I look around and I see this vast landscape of these different organizations, how do we successfully bring other people into the church that Christ built? How can we interest other people into discovering what the Bible has to say about our Lord and the, and the church that He established with His own blood? Paul taught Timothy in our passage about a form of godliness. One that many men held, but it was not from God. So what can we tell people about the church of Christ to interest them? What can we show them about the church of Christ demonstrating the differences between the Lord's body and all of the other churches throughout the world that have been established at the hands of men? Can we talk about how we put emphasis on having godly families and and spending time together promoting that? Well, we could because we do hold that in high esteem. Can we tell them that we are interested in helping those in our community and those around the world? Well, we could certainly tell them that because we're interested in doing those things. Can we tell them about our love for Jesus and the Father and and how we strive to live our lives in accordance to the plan that they have delivered to us? Well, certainly that would be a part of it. But, let me ask you a question. How would that message be any different than any other organization in the world that claims to follow after Christ, but follows after Him in a different way? Now obviously, if we're talking about the plan that He has laid forth, we're talking about following word for word from the Bible, right? But we can go to any denomination in the world and they will say the same thing. So how is our message different if we say, well, we want to show our love for family. We want to show our love for God and His Son and His church. They will say exactly the same thing. So what can we say to interest people in learning more about the Lord's church? One man told me once, he said, well, we can't out-entertain them, so we have to outwork them. Well, I, I agree with that, but how are we going to outwork them? What's our plan going to be? I think so that we can explain some things unique about the Lord's church, we have to point to some differences, some things that are peculiar to the church of Christ. And I've entitled tonight's sermon, What is Different About the Church of Christ? Now, we understand that the Lord's body is different from any organization that a man can create. But we have to sometimes be reminded so that we have those tools at our disposal and we're able to give an answer when someone asks a question. A member of the Lord's Church should easily be able to be identified or a congregation of the Lord's people should be able to be identified because that individual or that congregation, and this is our first point, will bear the cross of Christ. Now we have to understand what that means because there's a lot of misunderstanding in the world to what it means to bear the cross. First of all, we're going to talk about just two points of bearing the cross, and they're a multitude. But we bear the cross of Christ first by working. Have you ever seen people who were cross-wearers instead of cross-bearers? 
I think that goes back to the idea of really misunderstanding the nature of the cross. The New Testament church, the one we read about, the first century church that is described to us in the book of Acts and following, they were cross-bearers. They bore the cross of Christ. Now I think we can see the shallow pretense of some religious people as they go around with, with big crosses hanging around their necks and, and they're a member of a certain clergy or whatever the case may be. They're cross-wearers. They're not demonstrating anything unique about what the Lord's church is and they're not doing and being the Lord's church. We see crosses in a lot of places, don't we? We see them on church spires. We see them on church letterheads. We'll see them on religious people's necks. But where do we need to see the cross? Where do we need to see someone bearing the cross in their lives? That's where we need to witness that, isn't it? We need to be able to look at someone and say, well, that individual is different. And how do we do that? By working the works that God has provided for us. Do you know what the peculiar thing about an identifying mark is? It doesn't work unless it can identify something, right? We can say all day long that we're a particular thing and if we do not have those identifying marks, well, we are not that thing. You can call a dog a rabbit all day long, but it does not have the identifying marks of a rabbit, does it? So it doesn't matter what we call it. We have to be vigilant in our reaching out and our working amongst people of the world. They have to be able to identify us as Christians. And there are only, uh, there's only one way to become a Christian, and that is through being added to the Lord's church through the plan of salvation. We understand that. The new walk which Paul described to the brethren in Rome is a lifestyle change that can only happen when we fulfill the commandments God has placed before us. And so as we walk the new walk, Romans 6, 3, and 4, we have to have those identifying marks that represent what we are doing. Christians bear Christ's cross by working, evangelizing in a particular area, doing the things that He has asked us to do. But there's another area in which we can bear the cross. And we have to understand completely as well what we intend here. We bear Christ's cross when we worship according to God's standard. Now bearing the cross of Christ is, and when we look at the cross, we understand it was a killing apparatus. And so when we bear the cross initially and throughout our lives, we use that cross to put to death the old man of sin because that is where we came into contact with the blood of Jesus through baptism. He died on the cross and so it's symbolic that we bear the cross of Christ. Now when we come into worship, and as we are worshiping faithfully, we have to understand that's not necessarily bearing the cross of Christ. We bear the cross in our lives. We ought to be able to come in and worship God without having to put to death the old man of sin, right? But So what do we mean when we talk about bearing the cross when we worship according to God's standards? Well, there may be a time when we have to stand up and say that particular act of worship is not being done correctly. We may be interested maybe in doing that type of a, of a worship act, but we have to bear the cross and we have to say, I'm not going to do that. 
I'm going to worship according to God's standards. Now let's notice some examples. We'll look at the, the acts of worship that we engage in each time that we meet, particularly when we meet on Sunday, because we'll talk about the offering in the Lord's Supper. But we pray. Prayer is a great blessing. Prayer is, a, is an act that faithful Christians engage in on a regular basis, especially when we come together, we engage in it several times. Luke said this, Acts 2.42, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, and in breaking of bread, and in prayers. Prayer is a very important thing. But we have to understand how do we pray appropriately, right? Well, when we come together as a, as a group, we have to pray according to the way that, that Jesus instructed when He delivered the model prayer. We pray to the Father, right? We pray to the Father. Now, every aspect of the model prayer is not applicable today because the kingdom came. We can't pray for it to come again, but we can pray for its furtherance, right? We have to pray through Christ. Remember, He said, you'll ask nothing of me anymore, but you'll ask the Father through my name. And so we'll pray in the name of Jesus. We can't pray through the, the name of Mary, the mother of Jesus. She doesn't have any kind of authority. She's not the person who is our mediator or the person who can intercede for us. Christ is our only mediator. So we have to pray appropriately, right? We have to pray according to the laws that God has set forth. When we come together collectively, men lead prayers. Faithful brethren lead prayers. Our sisters don't. That doesn't mean they're not faithful, but it simply means that's not their role, right? And so when we come together, God expects us to, to pray. But here's one thing we have to understand, and this is a peculiar thing normally to the Lord's church. God expects us to pray, but prayer is not a pathway to the Father for the alien sinner. Jesus is John 14, verse 6. We can't pray our way into salvation. We have to obey the gospel plan of salvation. And nowhere in the gospel plan of salvation do we see where the alien sinner offers up a prayer to God. In fact, when we read John 9, 31, we see that God does not act on the prayers of those who are not Christians. That's one difference between the church of Christ and denominational churches. What about our singing? We talked this morning, we mentioned Hebrews 13, 15. The writer of Hebrews demanded that we offer up the sacrifice of the fruit of our lips. Now what does that intend? Well, that intends singing or could be praying, but particularly we're talking about singing. And so we have to understand and look at other passages and tell us how to do that. Well, we notice Colossians 3, verse 16, Ephesians 5, 18 and 19, it tells us to sing and make melody in our hearts. Within ourselves, we lift up our voices to God in a melodious tone and we sing praises to Him and we honor His high and holy name. And that's where He stops, isn't it? A thing that is peculiar about the church of Christ, and we understand this, but we need to tell others about it, is the way in which we offer up our music. We offer up the music of the voice, and when we look in Colossians 3.16 and Ephesians 5.19, when it talks about to sing, to solo, that's the, the Greek word, solo means to pluck an instrument, but within the context of the, uh, the Greek sentence structure, it gives the instrument on which 
to be plucked. And that's the heartstrings, right? It's a figurative statement. And so we lift up our voices and we sing without the accompaniment of an instrument. We observe the Lord's Supper. If the cross is the focal point of Old Testament prophecy and New Testament preaching, it just makes sense that we will honor that every single time we come together on the first day of the week, right? Because that was the commandment. Luke observed this, Acts 20, verse 7. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech unto midnight. Now what is different about the way we observe this, cere- this memorial uh, meal as compared to the denominations of the world? Well, for the most part, we observe it every single first day of the week. And why is that? Each week has a first day. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together, they met every first day of the week, and every first day of the week they prayed, they sang, they preached, they gave of their means, we'll notice that in a few moments, and they observed and took the Lord's Supper. Because the Bible tells us they came together on the first day of the week. And that's what God expects. That's another thing that makes us peculiar the Lord's church that we read about in Acts chapter 2. Then we come to giving. Paul made the commandment, we mentioned it this morning, 1 Corinthians 16, particularly we talked about verse 2, but we see the order in verse 1. The order was given to Galatia, and so the Corinthians were to do the thing as well. So what we gain from that is that Paul commanded the giving of the first day of the week through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and that was a universal commandment, not particularly to Corinth, not peculiar to them, peculiar to the church universal. Paul said this offering was to be collected every first day of the week. Now, it is interesting to me. So many denominations in the world will say, we're not going to observe the Lord's Supper except once a year, twice a year, every quarter, or something of that nature, because they don't want it to become commonplace. Well, I don't know how anyone can observe the Lord's Supper and reflect on what Christ did for us and it just become common. But it is very interesting to me that they will take up a collection of money every single time they come together. Sundays, Wednesdays, revivals, vacation Bible schools, any time they'll pass the hat, right? But, and I notice that doesn't make the giving become common. It just doesn't make sense. We are to give on the first day of the week as God has prospered us. And we set that aside as we have purposed in our hearts and we've deliberated about it. And that's what makes the New Testament church peculiar from denominations of the world. Of course, preaching and teaching. The word preached in Acts 20 verse 7 means reasoned. Paul often has been quoted as talking about us sitting down and reasoning together. Let's reason together. God gave us a mind. And He expects us to use that mind to reason through His Word. His Word is not difficult. Are there some difficult aspects in it? Well, of course there is. Peter mentioned some difficult letters or some of the writings that Paul wrote that were difficult. He didn't say impossible. He said difficult. But if we reason through them instead of just accepting 
what someone says. We never want to do that. There are so many denominations in the world where someone will say, well, my priest said this or my pastor said that. Well, it doesn't matter what a quote priest or a quote pastor or, or a preacher or an elder or anyone says. As far as that goes, it only matters what the Bible says. And we can reason through and come to the proper understanding. That makes us peculiar. Members of the church of Christ will bear the cross. And there's something else that is different about the church of the New Testament and man-made churches in the world. The church of the New Testament will boast. Now wait a minute. We just read in our passage where boasting was listed among a series of sins of which Paul spoke. So is boasting good or bad? Well, I guess it depends on about what we boast, right? The church of the New Testament, we bear the cross and we boast about the power of the cross, not the power of men. We do not give honor and glory to a man. Does that mean that we can't honor people who are faithful? Absolutely. Paul said, mark those who are faithful, right? As well as marking the disorderly. So we, we can mark or brand those who are faithful so we'll know and, and we can follow after them as they follow after Christ. But we have to boast about the cross. That's the power. You recall back in the Old Testament when Moses had come to the end of, of his service to God that the grave of Moses was wrapped in secrecy and no one knew it, where God had buried the great man. And you, Do you know what that did? I don't know exactly why God chose to make that a secret. I have a pretty good idea understanding Israel's history after that, that they would have enshrined that and they would have worshipped that tomb and they would have honored Moses as if he were God himself. But God set the cross, on the other hand, in bold relief, didn't He? We are to honor the cross, the, the events of the cross, the things that happened on the cross, so we can remember and understand the power of the cross and the things that Jesus did on that cross. It's not really the power of the cross, is it? It's the power of the Savior that died on the cross. Paul described its value this way. Romans 5, 10, he said, We were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. There's nothing more valuable than that reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. That's the power of which we boast, isn't it? The power of Christ, the life-saving power of a Savior who gave Himself to be murdered on a cross. Paul said this, Romans 1.16, we're very familiar. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And what's the gospel? It's the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it is powerful only because Christ is the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation means the correct sacrifice. There have been sacrifices, untold numbers of sacrifices, probably millions and millions of sacrifices over the 4,000 year period all the way up to the time Christ died. 
But those sacrifices were not appropriate to do what Christ did. That's what made Him the propitiation. There are denominations in the world who make the claim that their priests or pastors or other members of their hierarchy have the ability in this world to forgive sin. You can go in and and talk to a man or a woman and they can absolve you from sin. Nothing could be further from the truth. That's the difference between the church of Christ, the church we read about in Acts chapter 2 and the following or the balance of the New Testament. That's the difference between that church, God's church, and the denominations of the world. There's only one person who can absolve or forgive sin and of course that is Christ Himself, that is God. Just as it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin, Hebrews 10.4, no person can grant freedom from sin in this life. Only Christ can do that. We saw Him do it as we read through the New Testament while He lived on earth. And He does it as He sits in heaven now. Of course, the only thing capable of forgiving those sins was the perfect Savior. And that was the propitiation that Jesus had. The sacrifice had to be perfect and the motive had to be perfect. Of course, the motive was the salvation of God's creation. Paul reminded his readers, Romans 5 verse 8, But God commendeth His love toward us in that, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What a wonderful sentiment. What can we say about the church we read about in the New Testament? What can we reveal to someone to demonstrate the uniqueness of the church we read about as opposed to a church they may think is the one we read about in the Bible, but not so. What can we tell them? What can we tell them about the church, the one for which Christ established with His own blood, Acts twenty twenty eight, The church that He said He would build, Matthew sixteen eighteen. What can we tell them? We can tell them that the members of that church believe the facts presented in the Bible. That's our third and final point. Someone says, well, a denominational church believes. And that's true. They have beliefs. And I'm not disparaging them because they have beliefs. I think that they're sincere for the most part. But members of Christ's church believe those facts presented in the Bible. We don't take someone's word for it. That ought to always be a unique identifying characteristic of a Christian. We don't don't accept something just simply because someone claims it to be true. Now we must never, never take anyone's word. Now can we follow someone's teachings and, and use them as an example? Well, certainly we can. We can if they're doing the things that God has demonstrated. But I want us to notice that most denominational preachers who, in the words of Jesus, Matthew 23, 15, will compass sea and land to make one proselyte. Of course, he was talking about the Jews, but but we can use it in the same sense with denominations of the day. They will extol the virtues of their particular denomination. Then do you know what they turn right around and teach? With just as much fervor as... The, uh, as, as supporting their particular denomination, they will fervently declare one church is as good as another. 
one church is as good as another. It makes no difference which church you quote join. Because in essence, their teaching is the church really isn't important anyway. The difference between denominations in the New Testament church is the New Testament church believes in the facts of the Bible that says the church is extremely important. In fact, one cannot get to heaven outside of the body of Christ. Christ taught that, and the apostles believed it. Now, I want us to notice something. Most people will agree that Jesus purchased His church with His own blood. Acts 20, 28. We'll read that and we'll say amen, right? Most people will. Most people will agree that He gave Himself for it. Ephesians 5, verse 25. The world will read that and say, I agree with that. But then, they imply that He bought a gold brick or a white elephant. Now, have you ever heard of a white elephant? Let me explain to you what I learned to be a white elephant. It is something that is very expensive, but extremely useless because its upkeep exceeds its value. The white elephant. Now think about that. I believe Jesus died for the church. I believe He gave Himself for it. But it really doesn't matter. Its upkeep exceeds its value. If the church doesn't matter, if you don't have to be a member of any church to get to heaven, why did Christ die? Why did He buy that congregation of the Lord's people universal? It wasn't necessary, was it? The term white elephant arose from Southeast Asian monarchs because white elephants were considered extremely valuable Laws protected the white elephant from labor. You could not uh, kill the thing. You couldn't use it to, to prosper in some way. So it was quite an honor for a monarch to give you a white elephant, but at the same time it was a great curse because it, was, it cost more to keep than it was worth. You couldn't do anything with it. You couldn't turn it out into the wilderness. You couldn't kill the thing to get, off, to get it off the payroll. You just simply had to keep it up. And so it had to be retained and could not be put to practical use and it was of significant amount to maintain. Now we believe in the fact that the church is the most precious institution in this world ever created. Now, that is one way in which the church of Christ differs from denominations. One church is not as good as another. One must be a member of the church of which we read about in the New Testament in order to gain heaven. And we have to do all we can to search out and differentiate between the church of the New Testament and the counterfeits that exist in the world. Paul said this, talking of Christ, he said, He is the Savior of the body, the church. Ephesians 5.23 and Colossians 1.18. He's the Savior of the body. And he said the body is the church. We cannot be saved outside the body of Christ. He also said in Ephesians 1 verse 3 that all spiritual blessings are in 
Christ Jesus. The New Testament church will believe the facts Jesus taught concerning any biblical doctrine. And we certainly will concerning the church. And we will hold dear that form of godliness about which Paul spoke. Now he's not talking about the counterfeit. We obviously will not hold that dear, but we will hold that form of godliness of which Paul spoke and taught. Denominations hold a form of godliness, but it's foreign to the New Testament. That's something that is peculiar. I know a, a few, or I know a few, if any, prominent denominations in the world that will allow someone into their ranks without being baptized, quote, baptized in some form. Okay? I know very few. Some organizations sprinkle or pour, some do immerse, but they make you do that to be a part of their organization. Now, at the same time, after teaching that and requiring that out of people, they'll send their young men and women to seminaries all over the world so they can prove that Jesus did not mean what He said in Mark 16, 16. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Or, that he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, he that believeth not shall be damned. They'll spend untold amount of man hours and money to prove that Jesus didn't mean those statements. Now we don't believe that. We're going to hold that form of godliness that Jesus stated those were the facts. And denominations are very vigilant in trying to distance themselves from the statements that Peter made on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2.38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. He made a great and a grand statement later on in his life, 1 Peter 3.21, stating the like figure. He, had talk, he was talking about the flood and how the water lifted up the ark and it saved those eight souls inside the ark. He said the like figure or the same example, wherein baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a clear conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I believe Peter. I'm going to believe him. I think most agree with the Holy Spirit on the fact of faith being necessary for salvation. Hebrews 11 one. I think the world would agree that you have to change your lifestyle. You have to turn it over to God. You have to repent of past sins. Acts 2.38 I think that, that they will agree with the statement Paul made on Mars Hill that God commandeth all men everywhere now to repent. I think that most people will agree that confession is mandatory. Romans 10.10 in order to be able to become a Christian. But most will disagree and they will outright ignore the biblical teaching on the final step into salvation for an alien sinner. And that's baptism. We don't think baptism is any more important, but it is just as important. Now that's another difference between the church of the New Testament and the denominations of the world. When we introduce people to the Lord's church, it isn't enough to point out that we love God. It isn't enough to point out that we love our families 
and that we want to live a certain way and live up to the standards that God has set before us because that is what all organizations teach that claim to be followers of God. So we have to differentiate. We have to point out the true differences, right? We can't simply state those things. We have to understand and be able to tell someone that we are different. And we can't be ashamed of that. Jesus was not ashamed of it, and neither were the apostles. And that's the way that we're going to have to go about introducing people. Now, can we do that in such a way that is offensive? Absolutely. Is that what we want? Absolutely not. That's not what we want. But we still need to be able to do that. The church of Christ will bear the cross of Jesus. It will boast of the the power of the sacrifice of the cross and it believes the facts of the cross. And that's what God expects. The thing we need to understand and something that we need to be able to tell the world, the church Jesus built is not a denomination. It has no earthly headquarters. It has no structure beyond the local congregation. The church Jesus built is non-denominational, it's pre-denominational, and it's anti-denominational. There's only one church. Christ said, I'll build my church, and we need to search it out. That means Christ does not believe, He did not teach, and neither should we, or endorse all of this religious division that we find in the world today. Paul clearly said this, Ephesians 4, beginning with verse 1. He said, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He said, there is one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. There is simply one church. And we have to be able to be distinguished. If you're not a member of that church, you need to do that. Don't allow Christ to return and and not in a covenant relationship with God. We talked about the plan of salvation, the steps of getting into the church, being added to the church. You don't join God's church. He adds you to it through obedience and faith. If you've done that, you become unfaithful, come back to Him through confession, repentance, and prayer. If you need to answer this invitation, do that as we stand and as we sing.